Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 260, we visit with Martin Settle, author of Teaching During the Jurassic, an introspective, poignant, and often humorous take on what it means to be a teacher. Martin calls himself an old hippie teacher. His memoirs in the vein of Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods but instead of the Appalachian Trail, we follow the twists and turns of Martin Settle's teaching career from his first approach to teaching as a hippie subversive to his eventual triumph as a self-actualized person. Part memoir, part teaching guide, this book charts the Jurassic period of teaching. No personal computers, no cell phones, no internet, and the introduction of new social movements in the classroom, women's rights, civil rights, and gay rights. Settle addresses some of the universals of the profession, how to deal with administrators, behavioral problems in the classroom, the outsider student, the psychologically dangerous student, and more. Taylor Bowler, lifestyle editor at Charlotte Magazine, had this to say about the book. In a year that's shown us just how essential good teachers are, Martin Settle's book, Teaching During the Jurassic, will leave you with a newfound respect for his noble profession. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWade.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and soon uh, print book as well. It's, uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250-year-old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which, if solved, uh, might change U.S. history, uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. And Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel. I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is the heart of this novel. Uh, but it's modern day, set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear, doubt, humor, and new life. And where these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. we also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Martin, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Landis. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Well, thank you very much. It's yeah. a long, uh, long journey. 
as as all books are, right? <laughs> I don't know. I can only speak for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it seems to be that way when I interview authors. They all they all slog through it and get through it, and it's it's a real commitment. But uh, for you, this this commitment uh, that resulted in this book is a collection of stories from your life as a high school teacher from the late 1960s to the early 1990s, mixed with advice and commentary on the teaching profession. So I'd like to start first with a little bit about your story. When did you know you wanted to be a teacher and why? Well, I it uh, I think that like a lot of things in my life, I uh, kind of backed in. Uh, the thing that was most important to me like you have on your website, I'm a lifelong learner. I just love learning. And um, uh, I, when I graduated from college, uh, God, I had so many hours, I didn't know what to do. So I just became an English major because I had most of my things in that area. But uh, along with that, it's, it uh, turned out to be a good thing because I had an advisor say, you know, get your teaching certificate, okay? And so I did. I didn't go right it. I didn't go right into teaching. I was drafted, but uh, when I got out of the army, uh, you know, I started looking around for things that I could earn a living at, and uh, I got into teaching because I loved learning, and I loved uh, I loved to excite not only my students but myself all the time uh, with uh, some of the things going on, and I don't care what field it is. So. Uh, and that uh, served me well uh, during my life. Yeah, and that's that's evident in the book. I mean, I can tell by uh, having read the book that, and I really enjoyed it that uh, you 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 really took hold of the profession and uh, and, and committed to it. Uh, but but I want to backtrack just before the army, right when you're getting your teaching certificate, because you open the book. Uh, uh, you you label this period, you know, the Jurassic uh, for lack of technology and intolerance of social change, but Let's talk about Miss Bolts, someone who is a shining example of the pre-Jurassic, you know, how she measured you up and spit you out and sent you to the Army thinking you'd never, ever teach. Oh, my God. Well, I would call her a previous uh, geologic period called the Cambrian, <laughs> Cambrian period. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we were like mixing oil and water together. Uh, she was uh, really an old style teacher. And uh, I was uh, a hippie, and uh, she was so anti-hippie, uh, and it was growing at that particular time. It used to be embarrassing to be in her class and watch kids that were hippies raise their hands, especially boys with long hair, and uh, to answer a question, and she would go, all right, I don't see any hands up, and uh, she wouldn't call on them, you know. Uh, it's not that she wasn't a uh, a good teacher. Uh, it was that uh, she had a prejudice so strong, and uh, and I, of course, balked at many things that she did. That uh, at the end of it all, uh, I got a C in student teaching, which is like the kiss of death. <laughs> you know, they, you know, it was like you will never teach. You know. Uh, so, uh, I really did think that was the end of my career, but, uh, when I got back from the army, I got a phone call and, uh, somebody, some teacher had quit in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, I knew the, uh, the, uh, 
guidance counselor and uh, the uh, uh, people in, at Quincy College, where I graduated from. And he said, Marty, go out there and interview for that job. So I did. And it turned out that uh, my military experience was what got me the job. <laughs> the guy was a, form, he was a former vet. He didn't give uh, uh, two cents worth of uh, you know, for people that just had all the degrees that uh, you know they might want. Yeah, and I believe you had the last laugh for Miss Bolts because uh, even though you got to see in your student teaching, you received the Teacher of the Year Award in 1972 in Quincy, Illinois. Hippie does well. Who would have thought? Well, you know what? I did send her the clippings uh, out of the newspaper, <laughs> and uh, you know, I never got any response to that. But uh, it was a, it was, uh, it was a little pleasure that mm-hmm. I had. And said, well, you know, this no good. Uh, this guy, this hippie guy, actually could teach. So, yeah, not that you held a grudge or anything. You just sent her the clippings, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just a little jab, not not yeah. too bad. I didn't I didn't uh, try to say anything except beyond center of the clippings. Uh, I yeah. thought that was enough. Well, after you got this first job, you were as you describe in the book. Uh, uh, you were into your subversive uh, years. You were Clark Kent to the administration. Your colleagues, nice haircut, conservative dress, and then in your classroom, you you turned into your alter ego hippie when you shut the classroom door. But then in another chapter, you explained that that was fine and okay, but you, but something clicked in your mind. You realized uh, that in order to be more of a professional uh, and also because a tid, kids needed uh, maybe more adult guidance than they needed a friend. Could you talk about that a second? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was steeped in, uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, activist and, uh, you know, protesting and things like that when I, uh, you know, went into teaching at first. And there was a there was a, a seminal book called uh, Teaching as a Subversive Activity, which appealed to me a great deal. Uh, Neil Postman and I believe the other guy's Wine Gardner. And um, I decided that that's what I would do. Uh, you know, just listen as if I were Clark Kent at the um, at, at the uh, newspaper. But secretly, when I close that door, I could give people uh, ideas and things that uh, probably weren't uh, acceptable. Um, I'm very lucky that I made it to the park. <laughs> very lucky. Actually, a professional and decided that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was it was egotistical on my part to think that I could be the superhero. And uh, also I started working with with others, uh, you know, and realizing uh, their um, their goodwill and uh, and different approaches and uh, other good teachers. And so then I became a team player. And when I became a team player, that's to me when I became a professional. Yeah, before we dive a little bit more into the book here, uh, I want to round out your career a little bit. You continued to teach after high school for 17 years at uh, UNC Charlotte. Um, So I'm just curious, what did you find to be the biggest difference between teaching in college and teaching in high school? Well, college is a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, The, uh, you know, when you don't have to deal with discipline, and you don't have to deal with the sociology 
uh, of uh, students uh, in such a uh, in loco parentis sort of way. You know, uh, in college, if my students didn't show up for class, that was fine for me. I just had my syllabus and, you know, you'd miss three classes and you'd plunk. That's it. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, get a call from the parents, oh, you're treating Bobby badly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also, I think one of the things that people that just go to teach college uh, from the get-go, they do not, uh, they're not steeped as much in technique. And there's a lot of technique involved when you're trying to take everyone and put them in a classroom and try to create uh, exercises and a syllabus that keeps their attention and other kinds of things. You, it really is. So when I, um, I mean, I not only did I teach at UNC Charlotte, but I got my master's degree there too. Uh, and uh, I, so I got to see a lot of the teachers uh, is, uh, that I would eventually be teaching with in the classroom. And uh, their techniques were terrible. You know, they <laughs> they just did read their notes and uh, move on. And, you know, you could never do that uh, in a high school classroom. Uh, so after you uh, retired from teaching, you began writing, uh, you know, you wrote some books of poetry. Um, and uh, now you've written this this uh, book, uh, Teaching During the Jurassic. Uh, I'm wondering why you waited so long, Martin, to to write uh, and and publish the books. You, I mean, I, I assume you had other things to do. You're busy teaching, but uh, was this a lifelong dream of yours to to write and publish? Yes. Uh, well, I think that uh, what I think, and somehow in the back of my mind, because uh, you know, I I was uh, a little pack rat when it came to keeping pieces of paper and folders and all kinds of stuff with the kind of idea that someday I'm going to write this up, you know, mm. and uh, the someday finally came. But uh, I think in the midst of raising a family uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, ideally I would have gone on to uh, get my PhD, I believe. But, um, you know, I really wanted to be in on all the things my daughter was involved in. And, uh, you know, I was a, uh, a coach for her teams and, you know, so, um, I think the, my involvement with, uh, uh, with, uh, my family, uh, more than anything. And also to, uh, like you're going through, um, I had a, uh, had in-laws, both of my in-laws were very old and decrepit. And, uh, I spent a lot of time with them and a lot of time with my father, uh, as he was, getting uh, older and older, and all of them lived to their mid-90s. Mm. So it was a long haul. But it's also, as you were, a lot of, a lot of caretaking kinds of things. Didn't give me a lot of time to write. Yeah. Well, uh, listeners, I want to share with you, uh, you know, Martin has this wealth of experience. He's written uh, these poetry books. He's written this book. We're going to talk on Patreon uh, about uh, his seven writing strategies for completing a book. Uh, after this is over, you can jump over, listen to that at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. And when you do, you can help support the podcast. So we'll do that. Uh, Martin, um, another blurb that you got uh, from uh, Jackie Fishman, National Teacher Leadership Team, says um, there's wisdom in this book about not only enduring the teaching experience, 
or prevailing as a self-actualized person. This memoir is a must-read for all in the education profession. And while I did find, Martin, that if I was going to be a teacher, this was a valuable resource, I wonder also if uh, even more than, you know, educators, because my wife was a teacher for 15 years and, you know, they understand and the spouses of teachers understand what they go through. I wonder even more than the teachers if the parents and the politicians and the administrators would do well to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) You can see I don't uh, spare (laughs) some of those folks because uh, I I often uh, believe that uh, uh, they often get in the way. Uh, I I don't know how many times uh, uh, things that I had to uh, work around. I was always working around things, and that, and I wasn't trying to be a subversive either, because I was working around with other teachers, and uh, we would go, God, that that particular rule is just not gonna, it's <laughs> not gonna work. And there, there's a lot of, uh, I would love to stick a few people in a classroom, and and you know, they uh, there's this kind of perception that you go in, uh, spew out the material. Uh, grade a few papers, and that's it, and you get paid, uh, which many people consider too much. Uh, and so uh, they they have no idea the pressures uh, and the, uh, the strain and stress that is involved in doing a good job in education. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, uh, yes, I think it is a... Uh, it's something that I believe would be good for people to know in general, because I believe a lot of the problems that we have today are are from some kind of cultural devaluation of education, uh, and we got huge problems to solve. We don't need uh, we don't need this uh, mediocrity that we've come up with. Yeah, and I think in today's uh, world, we're also seeing a lot of uh, micromanagement, not just from the administrators, but school boards and parents coming in trying to, to, to actually, you know, comment on every single word that a teacher says, you know, in the classroom. I'm not sure how teachers can survive under that kind of uh, scrutiny to be perfect in everyone's eyes. I, I don't either. I mean... You know, one of the real luxuries that you have in podcasting is, like you said, I can back up <laughs> and uh, take that out or whatever. Right. <clears throat> have you not had a day, Landis, where you go, God, I you said that. That right. was stupid. You know, yeah. uh, I, and so I don't know of a teacher that hasn't just held their breath and hope that nobody got into a, a, a twist over something that they uh, spouted out. Uh, in the classroom, because you're you're constantly uh, trying to to be articulate, and uh, but it, there's so many distractions uh, and other things that you're watching out of the periphery of your eye, and and today uh, I find that uh, it's really a shame. I think one of the things I had in my book was that I felt like that the you know each generation has kind of its own. Uh, major themes. And uh, for me, I felt like during my teaching career was that uh, all these new areas opened up that we later called multiculturalism or diversity. And uh, 
So creeping into the class was was all kinds of things that we engaged. And I thought, you know, by the time I got done with teaching, and that includes college too, that we would be done with some of these things. I mean, I must be a cockeyed optimist, but uh, I thought uh, I never, not it's not that I believed there would not be racist, but I would never have believed that uh, it would be on a scale still uh, way beyond what I think it should be. And so, you know, there's some really, to me, uh, you know, just things that should be dismissed as out of, uh, you know, out of the intellectual character, things like uh, critical race theory. I mean, goodness, you know what, that's a non, to me, non-issue. And all of a sudden, it becomes an issue because of huge ignorance, uh, huge blotches of ignorance. And so, um, you know, I shake my head. I go, God, haven't you engaged this in school? Haven't we now as a society uh, came, come to grips with, uh, you know, uh, the real realization that racism is a long uh, history and it's uh, not going to be uh, that it is systemic, you know, and you just go, well, you know, we, and isn't it great when you are able to uh, look through a system that you've accepted all this time and all of a sudden realize it's, uh, it's false. And, and uh, I, I, to me, I find, always found that in my life to be uplifting. I mean, I yeah. open, up, open up so many times to things that I wasn't raised like that, but it was so, uh, you know, it does scare the bejesus out of you in the beginning, uh, you know, uh, homosexuality. God, the first time I heard about that, I, I, I was, uh, I, I couldn't believe there were such people. And so uh, it, it became a, a quest and it really was worth all the pain and effort and confusion that had to do with going through that. Yeah, and I, I would say that uh, listeners, it's it's worth the price of admission to this book just to get to the to the very end where Martin leaves you with uh, his epilogue, his principles from the principle. We're going to talk about the origins of that, but uh, there's one section called "Leave No Politician Behind," <laughs> and it says, it "says Can there be any doubt that politicians do not understand teachers and don't understand education? As educators, we need to adopt this political stance." No politician left behind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so there are those. You, you got to start a blog, Martin, and just you know take all these and turn each one of them into a blog post to support your book. But uh, yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to come back to some topics. We're going to have a reading now, like we do on Charlotte's podcast, where authors give voice to the written word. So we've selected a section of the book that illustrates uh, something that happened early in your teaching career. How about setting the stage for us? Where in the country were you teaching? What was the political climate? Why was what you're going to read to us the way it was at the time? All right. It, uh, uh, my first teaching job, the one that I told you about earlier, they called me in the middle of the year to come up there. Uh, was at a little town in uh, Illinois. I'm from Quincy, Illinois, but it was, I don't know, 15, uh, 20 miles away uh, in a little rural community, Kinderhook, Illinois. It's called West Pike High School. And, um, the uh, the they were kind of like a, a, an anachronism uh, at the time uh, because a lot of these issues about uh, dress code 
and hairstyles and stuff. They had been fought over uh, in Illinois in the Supreme Court. And um, mostly people came, uh, people that uh, advocated for, you know, uh, people wearing what they wanted to wear within uh, some kind of uh, uh, decency barriers. But uh, uh, the uh, and hair and everything else had been solved. So uh, when I went there, it was just like, uh, you know, that had never occurred. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, and, uh, you know, I mean, all yeah, the, I mean- I mean, what? What? Who cares about the Supreme Court in a little small town? Well, right? you know what they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. had a, they had a. <clears throat> they had a principle that I don't know where they got him from, but uh, I always thought maybe somewhere in the hills of the Ozarks, where he had never encountered uh, modern society. So, anytime you're ready, go ahead and uh, read us the little section here. Okay, I will. <clears throat> uh, it's entitled "I uh, uh, Hoosiers and the Pursuit." of the hirsute. And if those of you that don't know the word hirsute, it means hairy. It it used to be used a lot in uh, the hippie days. If you have ever seen the movie Hoosiers, you will understand that uh, the kind of rural community where I first taught. By 1970, a lot of changes had occurred, had entered education by way of the liberalities of the time. Not so for this high school in the barrens of corn country. The principal was a throwback to one of those isolated communities in the Ozark Hollers. He always referred to the students as students, as if we were having them for lunch. It was here I would make my first foray into the secret life of subversive settle. One of the great issues for the school administrators and school boards in the 60s was dress code and long hair. What to do with the invasions into schools of, quotation marks, revolutionary clothing and unkept long hair on males? I had seen principals and vice principals in the past go into apoplexy over the peace sign on a tie-dyed t-shirt or an afro with a pick in it. Since I had already made my mother cry when I came home from college with long hair, and had already been abused by police for my hippie appearance, I had been purged of the absurdity of the dangers of this kind of self-expression. As a teacher, I was of the belief that what students wore had little to do with what kind of people they were or were to become. This isolated rural school ignored all the court cases and mandates of the 1960s. They had a very strict dress code, which included haircuts for boys. During my first semester as a teacher, a problem similar to the one in Hoosiers came to head. The best basketball player on the team was going to stick to his principles and not play on the team. The community loved basketball more than anything else. They had some strapping farm boys in the area that always provided competitive seasons for the Spartans. Why on earth was Jamie Davis not going to play? Didn't he know this was a dagger into the heart of the community? The answer was because he wanted long hair, which was not allowed in the system. After many meetings, discussions, and votes, it appeared that neither side was going to budge an inch. 
Enter the subversive who came in from the cold. After school, during this furor, I met with Jamie Davis and told him I had lawyer friends in the city nearby and that he, if he and his parents were interested, I could arrange a meeting with them. I had a feeling that these issues had already been resolved in the Illinois Supreme Court, but it was all a bit obscure. Old Dan Davis, Jamie's father, was a no-nonsense farmer with thousands of acres of bottomland soil and a wallet thick enough to choke a large mule. He met with the lawyers with his tobacco spit can and a fistful of dollars. He basically listened and then said, go get him. The next day, the lawyers arrived at school with paperwork in hand to start legal proceedings. The principal was taken by surprise and turned a gobbler red as he clucked around his desk trying to figure out what to do. He called the superintendent, who arrived post-haste. Soon, a group of school board members pulled into the parking lot. They were pow they powwowed in the office for about two hours as everybody paraded past the large office windows, wondering what the heck was going on. After everyone dispersed, we never heard a peep about what went on from anyone. It was only on the next morning during class announcements when it was casually mentioned there would no longer be dress codes or hair codes. The students were stunned. It took a moment or two before the fuse burned down, and then they let out an explosive cheer. In the months following, Jamie went on to grow long hair and to play on a team that competed for the state championship. Would that it had ended like it did in Hoosiers with the state championship. But I think the most interesting thing of all is there wasn't a damn bit of difference in the student's ability to learn, regardless of what they wore, nor did their behavior turn into defiance of authority. No decadence had seeped in. The sky had refused to fall. And my first act as subversive teacher came successfully to a close. <laughs> Martin, I love that. And, and I think that last line, the sky had refused to fall, could be applied to a lot of things that people, uh, you know, get really tied in knots about, you know, these days. Oh, my heavens, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've seen it so many times that uh, I, uh, that's why with the uh, critical race theory, I just go, come on, <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing that hasn't been said a million, billion times in school already and in society. Yeah. So there's so many things I want to talk about. We're going to run out of time here, but you do yeah. some things in the book. You talk about Jurassic technology, which really uh, was, was fun, fun to me because uh, you started mentioning things that even I could remember being, you know, that <laughs> I'm in my sixties now, but you started with this idea that, uh, you know, we didn't have much back then except maybe, uh, you know, chalk. And we had, <laughs> uh, we had, uh, you know, that period where if you were good, you got to go bang the erasers outside. I remember that in elementary school. Yeah. You had the the number two yellow pencil. It, it, it just occurred to me, was there ever a number one pencil, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember the number two pencil, but I, I just feel like number one's been. been isn't, that, isn't that kind of like an icon? I mean, yeah. it is. It is. And, uh, you know, of course, no, no. Uh, of course, we didn't have cell phones, but you you. The way you got to do 
copies. I remember that blue ink machine. I don't know what it was called, but y'all had to roll the. It was called the Spirit Duplicator, also. But uh, <laughs> that sounds like something out of Back to the Future. The Spirit uh, yeah. Duplicator, yeah. the flux capacitor. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it does. <laughs> uh, another thing you talked about. I want to talk about humor in the classroom. Now you talked a lot about how this was important to you as a teacher, and I, I, I know some teachers more so in, in some private schools and public schools who've gotten away with humor, but it seems like that's not part of the syllabus. It's not part of what administrators want to see. And yet it's a way for teachers to connect with students. Um, talk about how humor was part of what you did. And and, and do you think it's it's lost uh, and, and can never return to the classroom or what? Well, I think there's kind of an attitude. I, I don't think people realize, uh, first of all, uh, you know, I think some of the classroom settings, I know you've been in classrooms like that where it's deadly dull, deadly. I mean, kids are just trying to stay awake. You see their heads snapping back and forth trying to stay awake. So there's nothing like an interjection of some laughter, et cetera, to keep things a little bit lively. And I think it also uh, shows you as a teacher being a, an accessible human being but uh, but another uh, thing that it does is that uh, humor often uh, provides things that uh, a truth that uh, can't be gotten out. Got, you know, you can't get to them uh, in other ways, and uh, they could be very helpful uh, in finding out the truth about things. Because usually in humor, there's some kind of assumption being made to make something funny. Mm, yeah. Well, you, you brought some of your uh, light bulb jokes out from from the day. I really enjoyed. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? One, if the bulb is willing to change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and and so you you connected with the students in this way. Um, you also had a chapter in here, Martin, about the outsiders, uh, the students that um, you know maybe on the surface didn't. Um, you know, fit in. They weren't part part of the cool crowd. That continues to this day. But you also, in that chapter, talked about how, given the demands of teaching, some students who are dealing with issues, it's not apparent to them. And you used an example of a young woman who was in the class who didn't actually participate much, but you didn't find out until later that she was being abused, you know, in her home. And, and she went on to do, you know, the the, the brave thing of, of reporting it um, but I, I love the little scene in the book So uh, where you asked her, uh, hey, Tammy, is this a run-on sentence? Tammy, my brain tells me it isn't running, maybe walking. You, running or walking, does this require a period anywhere? Tammy, my brain tells me a period would be nice. Required sounds mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always got a kick out of uh, Tammy, but, you know, she, uh, you know, because she always – like to come across as some ditzy blonde, you know, but she was smart. And uh, she was one of my, uh, uh, my lunch crowd that came in yeah. and drew on the blackboard and felt comfortable, uh, you know, because uh, her family was, uh, you know, uh, there were four sisters of that family and uh, the father had abused three of them. And the youngest one, he was, beginning to start in on her. And that's when Tammy uh, turned him in yeah. and wouldn't take any more of it. And, you know, I thought all during this time, 
you know, I'm laughing, I'm having a, you know, a good time with uh, Tammy, but I did not realize the uh, home conditions. And sometimes you, you know, you go, oh, she didn't have her homework. Well, the reason she didn't have her homework is because when dad was drinking and they knew he was coming home, mom had to take all the girls and go somewhere with them mm-hmm. so that he uh, wasn't, uh, they weren't there when he arrived home. So, oh, he, she didn't have her homework, and I'm really in a twist over that. You know, I mean, it really makes you pause for a second and think, now, wait a second. These kids have lives that I am unaware of. Yeah, it's a lot It's a lot for a teacher uh, to, to take on, but I loved how you created the luncheon club for those kids. It, almost, it reminded me a little bit of the breakfast club, you know, where, <laughs> yeah, where, where they, but, but they, they were there for being delinquents. You, you had them there just because they didn't fit in and they sort of started, you know, bonding together, which was, was really nice part of the book. Uh, and you also had uh, here some stories, Martin, I think about the students who, you know, didn't do well. They, they struggled, but they went on to do great things. And then they wrote to you, and thanked you for the influence that you had on them, which at the time, perhaps you didn't realize you had the influence. And that probably, as you said in the book, is one of the finest, uh, you know, things that can come out of teaching. It's it's the teacher's cocaine. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, to, to realize that uh, you have touched lives. You know you do. You know that you do. But it's nothing like hearing it from one of the students and saying, God, you really helped me during a time of life, which was pretty rough. And uh, so. Yeah. So, Mark, we're running out of time. Just a quick writing life question. We're going to jump over here to Patreon. We're going to talk more about your seven strategies for writing a book. But let's give our listeners a little taste now by referring back to something you mentioned earlier in this episode. You said you're a pack rat. Tell us how being a pack rat helps you uh, helps you write a book. Well, um you know, I, uh, I keep things, uh, you know, when you talked about the, uh, the duplicating machine, the blue duplicating machine, you know, I looked through my papers and from the past, I still had some, (laughs) (laughs) I, I still had, uh, you know, uh, and those things still give me a chill to look at them, you know, after all these years. But, uh, I also had, uh, like for instance, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about this principle that would do principles from the principle. Right. I still had some of his. I still had those bulletins yeah. uh, that had those things in it. So, uh, you know, it really is, uh, you know, uh, it, it keeping things uh, really made it a lot simpler uh, to put a book together. I wasn't a journal, a journaler. I didn't keep a journal. But uh, I was always jotting down things uh, that I thought were interesting stories, tucking them in the folder, uh, hoping someday that I would, uh, you know, make use of them. And, and I actually did. So, yeah. so, so Martin, final question in the writing life area. Sometimes, uh, you know, people are, who want to write a book are impatient about it. They, they, uh, they want to do it so badly early. They write the book. But... Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't land or it doesn't, it's not as well as it could have been. And I just wonder, um, uh, this book, which is very well done. I don't think you could have written this book, uh, while you're in high school and had the same, 
reflections and thought processes that you have gotten away from it a little bit. Do you agree with that? And what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, um, this would be the kind of, uh, and, and many of the things that I've written, people say, well, how long did that take you to write? And I, don't, I always say something, 30 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'm not going to write. Uh, but, uh, but for me, uh, you know, collecting, collecting stuff, uh, you know, and, and dragging it around from one move to another, you know, and my wife would go, why are you keeping that for God's sake? And you know what? It, uh, it did come in handy. So, uh, you know, recently from one of my students, uh, I got a, uh, a DVD of one of the plays that I had put on because I, I was in charge of plays and uh, what a delight to look back on that and see those people doing that. But anyway, that, that's a little off the topic. I, I just enjoy kind of, uh, you know, it's like a pack rat, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I yeah. call it eye hoarding. Uh, well, speaking of collecting, um, you have collected a lot of stories that have appeared in this book and, and, uh, I would say that uh, you know anyone who's been to school, anyone who's taught in school, anyone who's been an administrator and had amnesia about what it's like to be a teacher, you know this would be a great, great read to to have. You can find out more about Martin at uh, uh, at our website uh, charlottespodcast.com. We've got uh, links to to all this information and, and pictures and photos and book covers and that kind of thing. So, hey Martin, look, it's been great having you on the show. I felt like I went back to high school for a little bit today and <laughs> appreciate, appreciate you being a part of Charlotte Rear's podcast. Oh, listen, I am very appreciative to be on. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.